0: San Francisco Experience podcast, brought to you by Jim Herlihy. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley, California perspective for a global audience, for newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 19, episode 15, The Aftermath. The last days of the baby boom and the future of power in America. In conversation with author, Philip Bump. Our guest today is Philip Bump, a national columnist for The Washington Post. As one of the paper's most read writers, he focuses on the data behind polls and political rhetoric. He also writes a weekly newsletter, How to Read This Chart. He appears regularly on cable news and radio. His first book, The Aftermath, looks at the overlap at the end of the baby boom and the upheaval in American politics, culture, and the U.S. economy. Good afternoon, Philip, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Philip, in your book, The Aftermath, you state that the baby boom created modern America. But as the baby boom begins to fade, power, wealth, and politics will shift. Tell us about the baby boom generation and the coming transition.
1: Well, I, I mean, I wouldn't even say it's a coming transition, right? We're in the middle of a transition between the baby boom, which since 1946 or a, a couple of years after that has been the, the focus of most of the energy and attention that America has devoted to, to its citizens. This is a, a generation that the best way to think about it is in 1945 there are about 140 million people in America over the course of the next 19 years nearly 76 million babies were born so more than 50 percent of the population in 1945 born after that point in time. And so it's just this huge surge in the population. So the United States had to accommodate that it had to accommodate that economically, politically I had to build schools it had to put people to work it had to figure out you know if there's enough space in colleges it, had to, it was a huge opportunity for marketers. So there are all these ways in which over the course of time the baby boom, drew attention to itself, um, often willfully and often indirectly. But now what's happened is that the baby boomers have have reached retirement age. began retiring about a decade ago. Peak year for birth was about 65 years ago last year. So we're really, really starting to hit the, the heart of retirements for baby boomers. And as that's occurring, as we see the same pattern of the baby boomers needing resources that there need be, and now we need to accommodate this surge in people retiring, we need to deal with senior housing, we need to deal with what that means for retirement systems. We also have this new younger generation, millennials, Gen Z, so on and so forth, who are have a different set of demands, who have other needs than the baby boomers do. And really, for the first time, we have a generation large enough to compete with the baby boomers for attention and resources. And so that, this is that moment of transition. And that's really what's at the heart of a lot of the generational tension.
0: Let's just come back to the concept of the baby boom. Who designated it the baby boom? And was this an official designation or or is this simply an informal designation for the 76 million of us? And I'm a proud and happy baby boomer for the 76 million of us who were born between 1946 and 1964.
1: So interestingly, the number of baby boomers over time increased even after 1964 because immigration laws were loosened in the mid-1960s, and so there were 76 million births, but actually more baby boomers than that. The definition of the baby boom there are two aspects to it. There's the name and there's the definition. So the name is a function of marketers. There's a marketing firm in New York that really first started to use the terminology "baby boom." In particular, there was a book in 1980 called "Great Expectations" by a guy named Landon Jones, which really sort of formalized. It was a, one of the first real, really thorough assessments of the baby boom and i think i'll popularize it it wasn't until the 1980s that the baby boom sort of caught on as as part of the vernacular the definition that i use and there are different definitions for it but the definition i use in the book is that the one from the census bureau which puts it at 1946 to 1964 and that is actually determined by when there was the surge in births that then like, it tapered off you know there the, all, there is still subjectivity to this it's not the case that. You know, the Census Bureau is necessarily the the end-all, be-all authority on it, nor is it the case that the Census Bureau was the group that actually originated the term itself. Mm
0: -hmm. Now, in your book, early on, you actually identify the first baby boomer. She was a young woman from New Jersey, I think, and she was born a moment after midnight, January 1st, 1946. And throughout your book, you keep referencing her. Can you tell us a little bit about her and the... Unfolding of her life since 1946 as baby boomer number one.
1: This uh, woman named Kathleen Casey Kirschling was an mm-hmm. absolutely lovely woman who uh, was actually identified by Landon Jones in the book that I just mentioned as the first baby boomer. Now, look, there there are a lot of sort of asterisks which can apply to that. The Census Bureau, for example, thinks the baby boom really started in the middle of 1946, so maybe she should be. Was born at midnight on july 1st 1946 uh that there may have been other babies born the same moment you know that's possible for us to know who the very first person born the, the instant after <laughs> midnight on that day might have been but she's just sort of canonically become the first baby boomer in part because she was identified as such by jones so i had the opportunity to speak with her a number of times uh, it was fascinating to speak with her because not only was she the first boomer she's been around for the entirety of the baby boom, obviously. Um, she's also very aware of her status as the first baby boomer. And so not only was I speaking with someone who was a baby boomer and who could reflect on the baby boom, but I was speaking with someone who spent decades doing that sort of analysis, right? So it was someone who's very cognizant of her role as a, a, an avatar of the baby boom. And so you could sort of talk about the baby boom through the lens of an outside observer, even though it was also herself. So it was just it was great to talk with her again perfectly lovely woman and i think in a lot of ways really epitomizes the sorts of stereotypes that we assume and you know she grew up across the river from philadelphia she used to go see dick clark's american bandstand when it was playing uh-huh. in philadelphia right <laughs> and just like just like exactly the sort of uh, baby boom experience that you would expect the first baby
0: boomer to have had well i grew up in queens jamaica states in new york and of course being at the uh, at the earlier end of the baby boom, I remember our classes. I went to uh, parochial school in uh, mm. in Queens. And those classes, first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, were huge. And of course, that explosion of young kids was right across the board throughout the United States. Let's start with education and the impact of the baby boom, on education and you use an analogy of a python swallowing a pig the pig right. being the the demographic of the baby boom working its way through every aspect of american society but let's come back to education because that i guess that was where the wave of the baby boom was first and most dramatically felt throughout the united states
1: yeah, I think that's true, at least in terms of government resources. But the boom was felt earlier than that, right? I mean, when you talk about – let's assume that everyone starts kindergarten at the age of five. Mm-hmm. By, the, by the year 1949, you've had a huge surge of babies born in 46, 47, 48, 49 who need diapers, who need baby blankets, who need cribs. Like we, there was already from the very first months of the baby boom, there's already this huge boon and this huge shift – two people who had businesses built around babies Uh right and it was really these baby businesses that set this pig in the python pattern that all of a sudden there's this huge swelling of their market you know and they made tons of money and they really expanded quickly but then it passed you know by the time the baby boom ended so, too, did their dominance. And so the pig had moved on further down the Python, and then they'd had sort of an economic bust, if you will. Mm -hmm. But when we talk about schools, yes, that was the point at which, not the first point at which the government was unduly affected or or abnormally affected, but it was a point. And so, you know, they start hitting five. They start needing to go to kindergarten. And obviously, you need some place to put them. You need to build schools. As the book notes, that Los Angeles County, over the course of the baby boom, was building one new elementary, middle, or high school every single month. The course of the baby boom. That's mm-hmm. just one county. You just have to have someone put them, but you also have to have teachers, right? You need to have people who are trained who can actually teach kids what you're supposed to learn in kindergarten. Now, that is easier. Than when, for example, these kids start hitting high school age. Because at that point, you need high school teachers who, uh, you know, and I, I know my kids in kindergarten, I don't mean disparage kindergarten teachers, but it's a different set of skills sure. uh, that you need in order to be a high school teacher and then on to college, right? So, so you can see through the lens of education how this process affects everything, that that as this tidal wave slowly approaches, you have to accommodate it and that the United States government and the United States population scramble to do so.
0: Let's move on to culture. Within the, the history of the baby boom, February 5th, 1964 is probably a watershed moment when the beatles first appeared on the ed sullivan show talk to us about the impact of the impact of popular culture and the explosion of baby boom interest not only in the beatles but in pop music and just changing the shape of culture popular culture in america if not globally
1: the way the best way to think about the baby boom generally is just that you have a massive new market Right. And and or you have a massive new, new demographic, if you're looking at it, through the lens of government or something like that. But so you have at the same time that you have this surge in births, you have other things that are changing and evolving. You have the increased adoption of television as a mass media outlet, particularly one that allows you to do, you know, sights and sounds. <laughs> right? And so it allows you to televise uh, shows like it's all been you have uh, increased adoption of vinyl records that had been around for a while, but you had transistor radios that were emerging uh-huh. as, a, as a common item. There are all these technological changes as well, which made music a very natural sort of medium for particularly young people to embrace. And so these things combined, you have a lot of young people, you have new ways of reaching out to so them, you have new ways of distributing music, really helped make music a cultural force for baby boomers. That was obviously manifested very acutely the Beatles on not Sullivan, but it was manifested in the fact that we, you know, I'm a member of Gen X. I still know who the Beatles are, right? I mean, there are all these ways in which, there are lingering effects just by sheer scale. Bruce Springsteen, Rolling Stones, they're still touring. They still have audience for them. It's not that they're bad bands, obviously. I'm not trying to disparage them, but they have people who grew up listening to their music and who are still going to go and listen to their music, and that's a big enough audience that they can still sell out arenas. And it's just wild. And again, it's a function of the scale of the
0: baby boom. Mm -hmm. So let's move on to politics and social change. Of course, in the early, mid-1960s, we had civil rights we had political assassinations we had the vietnam war those three major catalysts in terms of us politics were very much part of the baby boomers evolution from young adolescent to teenagers to young ad- to young adults could you give us your comment on all or any of those uh, any of those three political giants that impacted the political makeup of the baby boom generation
1: interesting for me to reflect upon the baby booms the the things that affected the baby boom broadly because i can do it from a distance right one of the things that i realized as i was writing the book is that a lot of what we understand as being definitive for the baby boom a lot of the events that we point to as being things that really affected them often didn't affect a lot of baby boomers. When we talk about things like the Kennedy assassination, which I think is generally associated with baby boomers, mm-hmm. you know, the baby boom was still going on in 63 and 64, right? I mean, you know, the, the, the oldest boomers were 17, but a lot of the boomers were too young to remember the Kennedy assassination. And a lot of the way in which we understand who and what made the baby boom, the baby boom was sort of, assigned to the baby boom once the baby boomers got cultural political and economic power in the 1980s right so there was a there was in the 1980s a real sort of like nostalgia push by baby boomers who now had you know more of a say in culture than they did when they were young I mean obviously the Beatles when they were performing music they weren't themselves baby boomers right or, you know, at least other other musical acts. I, I honestly can't remember you know, when the Beatles were born. I think it was probably prior to 1946. But, you know, a lot of who they were listening to were people who were born before the baby boom, who were older than they were. But it was once we get to the 1980s, then the baby boomers were starting to define what it meant to be a baby boomer. And so there were sort of these agreed upon cultural touchstones and political touchstones that were cited as being the sorts of things that affected the baby boom but i really think that by isolating in that way and by having the baby boomers tell their story at that point in time and therefore looking back on the 60s and 70s we're understating the extent to which i think the 80s and 90s were really a very defining period for the baby boomers that better reflects who the boom is now than the sort of often rose-tinted perceptions of Mm -hmm. of what happened in the 60s
0: and 70s well by the 80s and 90s the baby boomers were well into their careers they Mm -hmm. had begun the process of buying homes starting families stimulating demand in the economy let's talk about that because we're we want to move on to talk about the the kind of the tension between the fading generation of baby boomers and the upcoming generation of millennials so let's start with the economy and as you said the 80s and 90s at that point the baby boomers are pretty much baked when it comes to their careers and the impact that they're having on the economy talk to us about that
1: you know you say they're well into their careers in the 80s and 90s and it's, it's sort of true but i mean again you know, you had boomers being born into the 1960s. So mm-hmm. in 1980s, 1980, in 1984, the youngest boomer was only 20, right? So yes, that's that's generally true. But I think the way in which one ought to think about sort of the evolution of the boomers over time is that there was they indirectly changed the world around them for the first decade or two, and that they directly did so ever since. that they were a focus of what people in power, in economics and politics were doing in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And then they were themselves those people in power uh, in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, right? And they, they remain that way, in part because there are so many of them. And so, you know, when we, when we look at the evolution of the baby boom over time, when we look about that transition of power, we now see this new group of younger Americans who finally is, A, old enough, and be populous enough to actually be able to challenge them. And so this is the new era that we're in that is this moment of transition.
0: And Philip, contrasting the two generations, we haven't really we haven't spent much time yet talking about the profile of the millennials. Maybe take a moment to profile the millennials so that we can go on and and kind of dissect what their desires are and their motivations, et cetera.
1: Sure. So, again, the the definition of millennial that I use is not one that is you know hard and fast, nor is it one set by the Census Bureau. I and I think most people at this point tend to use the definitions that are drawn by the Pew Research Center. They define millennials as being people who were born between 1981 and 1996, and so this is not people who actually were born at the turn of the millennium. It is instead people who were born during a period in which they helped shape, but largely were shaped by the changes that we saw. From the of the internet from all of the various chaos that happened at the turn of the century uh, you know that's that's the group we're talking about who were young at that point in time not people who were born at that time they're followed by gen z which name comes from gen x which is the generation i'm part of came right after the baby boom gen, the millennials used to be called gen y then they sort of became the millennials through sort of group consensus and then followed by gen z i think the gen z name will change at some point uh, there are various contenders for it. But so that's what we're talking about. When we talk about millennials, when we talk about Gen Z, millennials, were generally talking about people born in the 80s and 90s. Gen Z, we're talking about people born in the very late 90s uh, into the first decade of the 2000s. Mm-hmm.
0: Let's come back to politics between these two very large generations, the baby boomers mm-hmm. and the millennials. Can you give us a brief profile of the the typical i know it's hard to generalize uh, in a group of a cohort of 76 million people of baby boomers and a, a similar huge number of millennials but can you give us a sense of some underlying political philosophies and undercurrents that are more typical of the baby boomer or more typical of the millennials
1: Yeah, I mean, the difference between boomers and millennials in terms of politics probably isn't the one that people assume. One of those groups is much more partisan than the other, and it's not the boomers, it's the millennials. Uh, The baby boom was fairly evenly divided between Democrats and Republicans, as measured both in party identity and in 2016 slash 2020 presidential vote. Uh, They narrowly supported Trump over Biden in the most recent presidential election, for example. Millennials, on the other hand, are much, much more heavily democratic. Hmm. Uh, They are much more liberal-leaning than the baby boom, and there, there are a few reasons why. I mean, one is that Millennials are much more likely to have attended college than baby boomers, and that's mm-hmm. something that correlates to partisanship. Uh, they're much less likely to be white uh, than baby boomers. The baby boom, people may not realize, came at a real lull in American immigration. That there were restrictions on immigration that went into effect about a century ago that weren't lifted until right after the baby boom ended, mm-hmm. and that helped contribute to this generation being very, very light in terms of immigrant members and. They didn't have a lot of immigrant family members, immediate, you know, parents, for example. Mm-hmm. But also, it meant that it was a much whiter generation than subsequent generations. So there are a lot of there are demographic factors which overlap with that partisanship. But when we talk about which group is more heavily partisan, it is by far the millennials.
0: Now, when I think of the baby boomers, the concept of student debt was not a was not a significant concept in my generation. But that is a very large concept and a, a millstone, in a sense, around the neck of the millennials. So there's one major difference. Also, housing. When the baby boomers first began creating their, their homes and buying homes, et cetera, Prices were much lower. It took less of a bite out of your your income to, to buy a home versus today with the millennials. Maybe start with the, let's talk about some of the generational tensions that we're beginning to see emerge between the, the baby boomers and the millennials, whether it's student debt, home ownership, or social security. Let's look at those three because they seem to be three areas where yes, there's tension between the generations. And as the baby boomers power subsides and fades and the millennials political power increases what's going to happen
1: well that's a good question and i i I certainly wouldn't say i know exactly what's going to happen yeah i mean the each of those three things is largely a reflection of the scale of the baby boom in terms of the situation we see now so we have the period when baby boomers start going to college college is relatively inexpensive, but all of a sudden there's massive demand for college. Their labor market can't can, can't handle all of the baby boomers who are reaching working age. A substantial number of them ended up getting drafted and sent to Vietnam, mm-hmm. which was in part also a function of the scale of the baby boom. But universities scrambled to, to accommodate them. So there's a lot of funding for universities, there's big the expansion of universities, and the relationship between the average cost of college and, say, the minimum wage was fairly low. You could afford to work not very long at minimum wage and be able to pay off a year of college mm-hmm. that changed to that changed as a the number of colleges uh- remained fairly steady as there continued to be a lot of young people who wanted to go to college and in fact the college became more of a thing of demand then prices started to go up for college the minimum wage didn't go up as fast so all of a sudden relatively speaking college got more expensive and we switched to a policy in which people tended to take out federal student loans instead of using other mechanisms to pay for it so that led to loan debt and so it was just the nature of the college experience changed and the demand for college itself actually changed um, housing is actually probably the best example of the ways in which issues that aren't necessarily directly related to housing – or I'm sorry, related to politics get looped into this broader political argument. So consider that the baby boom generation started firing about a decade ago, mm-hmm. well, a little a little longer. And what that means is that the Great Recession, which hit 2007, 2008 – and really depleted people's retirement accounts in a lot of regards. And so one of the things that people see as a storehouse of value for their retirement is their house is the home that they own. Big boomers tend Mm to be likely to own a home. And so there is an incentive then, given that this is something they're going to use for retirement, as polling has shown, there's an incentive to try and protect the value of your property. Mm -hmm. So then your city comes to you and says, hey, look, we were thinking about putting an apartment building down the street or thinking about rezoning this area. Homeowners who tend to be older, tend to have more time to participate in these sorts of discussions, weigh in and say, I don't want to do that. I am worried about the value of my home. This is something that is personally and immediately important for me to do. And so I oppose that. The effect is that less housing gets built. And this isn't because the baby boom broadly, collectively is all voting and agreeing, hey, look, we want to stop new construction. It is instead that there are so many baby boomers, so many who own homes, so many of whom are looking at that home as a storehouse of value for retirement,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: weighing in and saying, look, we don't want to decrease that value. Collectively, it actually dampens the national housing market. And indirectly, according to research cited in the book, and the economy. The economy actually took a hit because there isn't enough housing for a lot of young people. Mm -hmm. Social security, of course, is a different issue. Social security is a system in which you pay into it while you're working and then you draw down from it once you retire. The challenge is... That now, A, it's being drawn down on very, very quickly because there's so many people retiring because the baby woman's retiring, as I said. And B, people are living longer than they used to. And so it's not clear that the payouts will be able to match expectations in part because people are living longer. And then, of course, there's this whole debate over whether there will be enough people to pay into the system over the long term to actually support with the population of seniors in the United States, which is expected to continue to grow even past the baby boom. Obviously, all very complicated issues, but all ones that overlap in some way with aging and the baby boom.
0: Certainly here in California, and our housing crisis, as everybody knows, is is enormous. Our population went from 18 million in August of 1963 to 39 million today, in march of 2023 so in the space of uh, 50 plus 50 some years our population more than doubled and of course housing has just not kept pace with that but i think you put your finger on it when you say that for for most baby boomers the home the value in the home particularly here in california that is a backstop to your retirement for many of many baby boomers as a result of reverse mortgages the value, the equity built up in the house is is actually what funds their retirement because of, right. uh, in part, because of reverse mortgages. Let's come back to Social Security because we see, of course, it's a transfer of payment so that the the people who are working are of working age today. Their payments are largely transferred to older retirees, those who are 66 and older. There really isn't a a trust fund, as as some politicians have called it, and what we're told is that that we are moving towards a crisis in terms of social security and uh, funding for social security and uh, tell uh, obviously we've got two camps here we've got the baby boomers who say hey i paid into it i expect to get something out of it and then the, the millennials who by the same token are coming back and saying well gee i've got the student debt i can't afford to buy a house and you're asking me to continue paying these hefty social security taxes to fund baby boomers who've got great houses, and don't have any student debt. So how is, that, how, is that, how is that political tension? Obviously, I'm oversimplifying it. But you can see that the battle lines are being drawn between these two generations. And we're, we're already seeing the opening salvos, particularly on the social security issue of this struggle between the two generations. What are your thoughts?
1: I, I think that you are very well versed on this issue that I think probably not a lot of Americans are paying close attention to beyond those who draw down from the system, right? But I think that there is a natural tension between older and younger Americans in terms of how what problems are most pressing. And we see this. We see this, for example, in polling or election results, which show that there's a correlation between how old people voters are and how likely they are to support things like school bond measures. Mm-hmm. That for older Americans, and the, some of this research is cited in the book, for older Americans, they're less likely to support school bond measures, presumably in large part because they're less likely to have Family members or themselves be in school. And one can assume that it works the other way as well, that younger Americans are less concerned about Social Security, despite the fact, obviously, they have that late in their future as opposed to in their past, but they are less likely to consider that a priority for government funding or resource allocation than they are things like pre-K programs and, and you know, the current state of schools and, and other issues that, are, that you know, young parents in particular have to deal with. I mean, I, you, you're right. You are right that uh, the Social Security system is both complicated and being strained but again this is the this is the pattern we've seen since the outside the baby baby boom's emergence and its scale relative to the population keeps breaking systems and this is the new system that is being broken to some extent then you know and i say breaking not necessarily in the sense of irreparably Mm -hmm. (laughs) right but more in the sense of you know you have you know something built out of legos and you it starts to crumble a little bit and you got to figure out how to put it back together it is almost certainly the case that this will be addressed the question isn't, are are we going to watch the social security system collapse and everyone, you know, be completely unable to access any funds? That's almost certainly unlikely. The question is, will people have to receive less money than they anticipated? Or the question is, how would this be backstopped? Will it be backstopped with an increase in immigration to have a long-term solution? Will Mm. it be backstopped by increasing taxes on wealthy Americans, as as has been proposed, which is a more immediate solution? It's to be determined. Um, That question, you know, I'm not going to sort of make an estimation of of what the answer will be, but it's very clear that at some point in time, the people in positions of power are going to have to uh, deal with this. And to my original point, the good news for older Americans is that people in positions of power tend to be older Americans. So they're very cognizant of these issues and paying a lot of attention to them uh, in ways that I think at times frustrate younger Americans.
0: Now, Philip, in addition to these these key issues of student debt, housing, and social security, and the uh, kind of opposing camps, generational camps, are there other significant issues that we haven't touched on yet where the millennials and the baby boomers don't see eye to eye which could potentially be another source for political conflict between the two generations
1: oh yeah absolutely i mean the one of the things that's sort of fascinating to consider is in addition to the fact that a lot of Americans, especially younger Americans, think that boomers are more conservative than they actually are, which in part is a function of just so many young people are Democrats that mm-hmm. the Republicans are necessarily more densely white and older. And so when you think of an older white American, the odds are better if they're going to be Republican than Democrat if you're just thinking about percentages of the party itself uh, so, but that you know but again that's misleading so beyond that though it's interesting just to consider the difference between older and younger Democrats mm-hmm. so older Democrats older liberals are people who Presumably, not universally, fought in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s for things like equal rights for women, for things like uh, access to abortion, for uh, you know other issues that were motivating uh, and needed to be addressed, you know, against the Vietnam War, so on and so forth. Younger people today, in part because a lot of those fights were successful and mm-hmm. uh, made change have a different set of priorities they prioritize um you know gun control they prioritize lgbtq issues they prioritize climate change which mm. obviously wasn't on people's radar to the same extent and that sets up an intergenerational tension of itself right so older liberals are saying hey why why don't you respect the, the fight that we did in the work that we're doing whereas younger liberals say hey how come you're not with us in these fights why aren't you engaged in these things that are right. So so just the passage of time and the effectiveness of some of the advocacy that's taken place in the past leads, I think, to some generational tension between older and
0: younger. Well, Philip, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, do you have some closing thoughts? Can you sum up this generational contrast between my generation, the baby boom generation, sure. and my daughter's generation, the millennial generation?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that once you start seeing the scale of the baby boom as a factor, you start seeing it everywhere. So when you think, for example, about, yes, the baby boom controls a disproportionate amount of wealth in the United States, there's also a lot of baby boomers. And so that gets divvied up. And so individual baby boomers are not themselves necessarily particularly wealthy. And so then think about how that can breed resentment right so younger people see baby boomers as wealthy mm-hmm. baby boomers themselves often don't feel wealthy and so both of them get irritated right? <laughs> right. younger people get irritated and the older people are like well i'm not like why are you mad at me right so you can see that same pattern play out in so many different ways uh-huh. power right oh why is the older generation holding on to power yada 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 well I, I i don't feel like congress is you know i'm not a member of congress i'm a baby boomer i feel like congress is not serving me either why are you getting mad at me right so the same thing the same scale plays out over and over and over again and it really shows also it helps you think more about this moment for things like social security for things like the extent to which we're focusing on older americans in our political debate we have to in the same way that very obviously you know when you describe the boom to people and say hey there's this huge surge in births, and five years later you had to build kindergarten someone says well yeah sure and then when you say okay great now they're all turning 65 75, and that needs to be dealt with and then people stop and say, oh, that makes sense. I see how this system needs to be accommodated in a way that it didn't need to be accommodated 15 years ago. And so, again, just reinforcing that scale and thinking about that scale, I think, helps us understand a lot of the tensions that we see in this moment.
0: Well, Philip, how can our listeners buy a copy of your book, The Aftermath?
1: The easiest is uh, if you go to my website, pbump.com, there are links to a bunch of different retailers, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, smaller shops. Uh, or if you go to your local bookstore, the odds are good, they'll have it there.
0: And Philip, where can our listeners follow you? You've outlined fascinating contrast between the desires, the economic, the political, the social desires of of an aging Baby Boom generation that was originally seventy six million people, and the emerging group of the Millennials. How can our listeners follow you and perhaps pose questions to you?
1: And I'm on Twitter at pbump, p b u m p, same as the website. I'm also on Mastodon at uh, journa.host slash pbump, uh, or Facebook Philip Bump, uh, whichever, or email me, <laughs> which is <laughs> on any of my articles at the Washington Post. You can find my email address. Mm-hmm.
0: Well Philip I want to thank you so much for being with us today and and ex- exposing the the dreams and the issues of these two generations which hopefully will we won't come to blows hopefully we'll we'll be able to settle our differences uh, amicably generationally but again we really appreciate you being with us and i really encourage our listeners to follow philip and by all means go out and get a copy of the aftermath because if you thought that this podcast was lively and a lively interchange those issues that philip has outlined for us here today are only going to become even more in the spotlight and perhaps even more contentious going forward. So, Philip, thank you so much for doing us all a great service.
1: Absolutely, my pleasure.
0: And for our listeners, today's episode is number 380 as the San Francisco Experience marks its third year. You can listen to us on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or any of the 19 platforms that feature the San Francisco Experience. And join our audience that spans 65 countries by subscribing to the podcast. This has been the San Francisco Experience with Jim Herlihy coming to you from San Francisco.